So hi everybody, welcome to ARE Live. Uh, I'm Mark Tier, the founder of Black Spectacles. And today we're gonna go talk about uh, the ARE 4 exam, programming, planning, and practice. And Mike's put together a great mock exam that we're gonna walk through today. Uh, before we get started, uh, if you'd like to attend our next ARE Live broadcast, where we're gonna do an interesting one, we're gonna focus on the vignettes for ARE 4, kind of as a whole, as like a thing. Um, you know, lots of folks have issues, and um, <laughs> if anybody has issues, they have issues yeah, with vignettes. Feel some pain about uh, the vignette, so we're going to um, approach uh, that session from the perspective of what are some best practices for handling vignettes and so forth. So, you can go to blackspectacles.com/podcast to register to attend, and during the broadcast, you'll have a chance to ask questions to the group and Mike. So, it should be another great session. Um, also, some updates here for you guys. Um, just before Black Friday, uh, we launched our digital flashcards um, as a part of our pro membership. So I think we now have like 1,300 flashcards for ARE 5 or something like that, all, all, all sections of ARE 5. Um, so I know most of you guys are probably um, you know, taking ARE 4 if you're listening to this one. So just know that we're, we're working on developing the same um, type of product for ARE 4 by early January. Um, and what's cool about that is, you know, you can take the flashcards with you on the, on the fly, um, on your commute, you can do them on your phone, you can sort of star the ones that you know, the ones you don't know, you can kind of focus on those. You can actually create your own custom card, so um, um, it's, a, it's a really nice little thing. So, <clears throat> so that launched um, uh, in, uh, in late November, so if you haven't seen that, you can go to the website and upgrade your membership to Pro. Um, and then also, you should know that you know, early, early fall, we launched our group coaching program for the first time. Um, and that's been uh, quite a wonderful success. So we're going to be launching another program uh, that is going to start at the end of February. Um, and we will be accepting applications um, on January 9th is when that's going to open up. So right after the new year, January 9th is when you'll be able to apply. So if you want to go to learn a little bit more about that, you can go to blackspectacles.com slash group coaching. Um, and that's where you'll find all that information. And just as a reminder, the idea behind the group coaching program is it's really for folks, you know, who want to join a group of dedicated test takers who are taking the same exam on the same schedule, um, and it's led by a Black Spectacle certified coach. So that's someone who's recently become licensed and who we've trained up and vetted and so forth. Um, so, so far the coaches have been really awesome. Um, and you should know it's all done online, so it doesn't really matter where you are. Um, it's all about really kind of finding folks who are really committed to taking the exams and getting them done. So if you think that's, that's you and that's some, something that could be useful, then stay tuned and be sure to visit that page on January 9th. Um, and again, you can visit blackspectacles.com slash groupcoaching to learn more about that. <clears throat> so let's see, lastly, um, as I always say, if you're, you know, if you're looking for, uh, you know, uh, some exam prep and you're, uh, you, you uh, I often like to remind folks, if you want your boss to pay for your Black Spectacles membership... And who doesn't? Right? I mean, I do. I've been asking my boss to pay for my Black Spectacles <laughs> membership for years now. Be sure to tell them about Black Spectacles firm licenses for any kind, whether you work at a 10-person firm or a 10,000-person firm. We have licenses that, give that, that are flexible and, and work really well with all kinds of... Um, all different kinds of options. So don't forget about that. Blackspectacles.com slash firms to learn more about that. So for today... 
Um, as I mentioned uh, in most of these, we do have a special discount for Black Spectacles individual memberships to share at the end of the session. And then also at the end of today's episode, we'll choose someone from all the folks who submitted their answers to our mock exam, and they'll win a free one-month ARE prep Black Spectacles subscription. And we'll be tracking your answers, and everyone who gets them all right will get a free Black Spectacles t-shirt. So stay tuned for that as well. My guest, the guy who is sitting across from me, Mike Newman. If you don't know Mike, um, it's funny, we were at uh, AI Chicago holiday party the other day, and Mike was signing autographs. <laughs> um, of all the people who um, have been staring at Mike's face, many the, of, I'm sure many of you have the been very sad people who've been staring at Mike's face, staring at Mike's face for many, many hours. Uh, Mike's an adjunct professor at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. He's also the founder of Shed Studio, and he's the instructor for Black Spectacles Online ARE Exam Prep Curriculum. Which, again, if you haven't already checked it out, you can head over to blackspectacles.com. There's free tutorials. I think we're actually we developed this new thing called a dashboard, so. You can watch free courses. You can take some of the free practice exam questions. You can do some of the flashcards for free. Um, I know Eric's working on finishing <laughs> up the dashboard right now. So I know there's a version of it that's out right now. It's kind of basic. I know that in the next few days, it's going to get way more sophisticated, which is pretty cool. Um, in any case, the idea is you can, you can test it all out. Today, we'll be uh, taking questions using the GoToWebinar question box, as well as on Twitter using the ARE Live podcast hashtag. And so with that, I'll turn it over to you, Mr. Newman. Okay. Um, so one of the things that uh, I'd like to always mention at the beginning of these is uh, there are aspects of these questions that are very, very similar to the kinds of questions that you'll get uh, on the actual exam. But then there's a few that are a little different, and that's because I just want to use it as a way to get to a certain topic. So a couple of them, uh, don't, be, don't be too worried about it if you got something wrong. It's, uh, it may well be that I've manipulated the question in order to get you to think one thing uh, in order to be able to bring up a topic. Um, so just that little uh, caveat before we, uh, before we get going. Okay, let's see here. Let me see if I can get this uh, rolling here. Let's start with the first one here. Um, this one's a little wordy. Uh, you will see a few on the exam on 4.0 that will be uh, wordy like this. Most of them won't be quite this long. Um, just because there's only so much time for you to kind of get through them. Uh, on 5.0, there'll be a number of ones like this, but that's because it's set up in a slightly different way with the case studies and uh, things like that. Um, but on 4.0, this is a little bit longer than usual, but like I said, I wanted to be able to get to a couple of issues. So let's just jump in on it. Number one, the architect is getting ready to hand over the invoice at the de uh, design development drawing preview uh, with the client. The total architectural fee is $100,000. Martha and Jose have both worked on the project for 200 hours each so far. Anise has uh, so far put in 40 hours. Joe, meanwhile, has spent 150 hours. Given the following billing rates, what should they expect? And then there's a series of different possible answers. So before we go through the answers, let's look at a couple of key spots here. So the first one I notice is it's at the end of design development. Uh, so that's a key uh, thing we need to know. Another thing we need to know is, what's the overall fee? Well, the overall fee is $100,000. So that's the overall architectural fee. And then after that, we've got a whole series of uh, specific people with specific amounts of uh, hours that they've put in so far on the project. So uh, I'm going to use a little blank page here just to start the conversation, and then I'll jump back to the sheet. So let's talk about the overall billing. So we have $100,000 for our overall billing. Uh, that has to work for schematic design, 
design development, contract documents, bidding, and construction administration. Typically, uh, schematic design is usually about 15%. Design development is usually about 20%. The re reason I say usually is that these are not prescribed numbers, they're just sort of industry standards. So some folks in the industry will do a larger schematic design, maybe 20% there, and then a smaller design development, maybe 15 something, but it'll be about these numbers. Uh, and then uh, contract documents will be approximately 45%. Bidding will be about 5% of the overall contract time. And then that should leave 15% for the construction administration. So remember, for construction administration, you have to do all of the uh, payout reviews, the answer the RFIs. There's a whole series of things, uh, lots of site visits and uh, kind of answering questions from contractors, uh, reviewing things with code officials, all sorts of different uh, elements. Uh, so we have to have a lot of time for that. And 5% for bidding, um, so it doesn't always take that full amount of time, but you have to take a bit of time to come up with uh, the overall bid forms, to come up with the addenda as questions come up, uh, to be able to have time to respond to the owner, to help them understand the bids as they come in. There's a, there's a fair amount of time uh, involved in those things. So all of the different sections of time uh, have uh, some impact. So let's think about it. If our overall uh, cost is 100000 uh, then um, our schematic design is going to be uh, approximately 15000 uh, Our design development is going to be about $20,000 in time. Uh, schematic design, or excuse me, uh, contract documents uh, will be $45,000. Bidding 5,000 and then CA another 15,000. So there's a clear sense of how the overarching timeline is supposed to work. Now, you know, everybody works differently. There are reasons why some things aren't always exactly on target, but the concept is you have a certain amount of time uh, in order to get the original schematic elements done. Uh, then you have a little bit of time to sort of work those issues out once a specific uh, uh, aspect of the design has been chosen uh, and you have a sort of clear understanding and that's through the design development and then the contract documents are really pulling everything together to be able to tell people uh, kind of what this thing actually is so you can get bids and uh, permits and all of that. So okay, let's now go back, take a look at uh, what our question was. So here the question is, it's got a whole series of people, how much time they've put in, and we've gone up through design development. So let's just make a little list of the folks here. We've got Anise, who's a principal. Uh, they're being billed at $175 an hour, and they've worked 40 hours. So we could just multiply that out. Uh, we've got Joe, who is the project architect, and they're at $150 an hour, and so far they have put in 150 hours, and that's, we can multiply that out. And then we've got Martha, and Martha uh, is at 120, is a, one of the architects, and Martha has put in 200 hours so far. 
And then Jose, the intern, we're billing at 80, and they've also put in 200. So we can multiply all of those out and then just add them up. And when we add them up, uh, I'm actually not going to do it right now just because it takes a little bit of time, uh, but it ends up being approximately 69,000, uh, maybe 70,000 uh, in, uh, in that range. So let's, we now have our total number of where we are up to this moment. Now you may have noticed that I use the billable rate, uh, not the uh, other rates. We were talking about uh, schematic design and design development. So we're talking about the combination of those two, which should add up to about $35,000. We haven't even gotten to CDs yet. So we're comparing 69,000 to 35,000 and that the only real answer we could possibly give here is, oh my God, we're really far behind and all hell is about to break loose. So we scan down, we look at the various answers and what do you know, there's C. The billable work is far behind schedule and all hell is about to break loose. <laughs> uh, they obviously would not put that kind of terminology into an actual question. It's just sort of to lighten it up a little bit here. Um, but the idea here is that you're using the billable rate and the amount of time. And one of the things you notice is somebody who is being billed at a much higher rate, so in this case, Anis, is billed, being billed at $175 an hour. Uh, that billing rate at fewer hours, you know, they are only working 40 hours, but that's still uh, the equivalent of uh, more than about 100 hours of Jose's time because they're being billed at a higher rate. And so this is one of the things that you need to sort of feel comfortable with. Nobody's really going to expect you to be super good at it just on the exam, but the idea is that you should be comfortable with the idea that people are billed at different rates and that different amounts of time are logical for different participants. Uh, so somebody who's a principal should be putting in a few hours on lots of different projects. Somebody who's really like a project architect is probably putting in a lot of hours on a single project or maybe two projects. Uh, and it, that buildup uh, allows you to sort of understand the relationship between time and money. One of the key understandings here is that just because Anise is being billed at 175, it doesn't mean that's what they're being paid. In this case, uh, I've sort of made a simplification and said, well, they're being paid at 50. In terms of the question, it doesn't really matter. We, you know, who cares what they're being paid? What we care about is the billable rate in terms of the question. That's how much we're billing them out to uh, clients. But this is sort of interesting to note that the fact that the billable rate is probably about three times what the hourly pay actually is. And that extra amount of money is to not only pay them their hourly rate, but also to have the overhead of insurance and rent and all of those kinds of things. Um, this other column here of insurance, uh, insurance and the hourly pay were just to sort of confuse you and sort of put more information on there, uh, but they're, they're not really relevant, except for the fact to say that insurance is one of the things that ends up bumping the, the billable rate up uh, compared to the hourly rate. So this is a very relatively simple thing to be able to do. The numbers uh, that I gave you are pretty simple and that's uh, on purpose. They would give you similar uh, kind of round numbers. 
Um, but the idea of being able to see an architectural fee, like a $100,000 fee, but be able to understand that as broken down through the process, so design development, uh, construction administration, like those different elements, being able to understand how each part has a, a portion of that money and that that portion of that money is equal to time, but it's not a set amount of time. It's not a set number of hours because it depends on who's actually doing the work and what their billable rate is. So there's this sort of complicated uh, matrix of, of uh, aspects, but in the end, it's just who's done the work, how much time did they take, what are they billed at, and are we on track or not on track? And you, uh, as the project architect or project manager, you would spend a lot of time going through this beforehand, setting it all up so you could have a sense as it was happening on the day, are we ahead of track, are we behind track? A couple of questions about <clears throat> the, uh, the percentages based on schematic design and de design development. Are those industry standards? Are they accurate? What happens if you're using um, you know, building information modeling? Does that change things? Yeah, so that's a really good question, and we actually talk about it a lot at different points uh, on various of the different uh, uh, videos that we've done. Um, somewhat surprisingly, uh, I actually thought that the recent uh, 2017 contracts, uh, AIA contracts, might actually address this and start changing some of these numbers, um, but uh, they actually didn't. Um, and the reason I thought they were going to was exactly the reason that you asked which is in the day and age of uh, Revit and BIM systems, people are putting a lot more time into the schematic design uh, than they did in previous uh, years. And these numbers are all the sort of standard previous year numbers, but these are the ones that are still used uh, in the contracts and, and sort of expected to be used uh, in the near future. Uh, like I said, though, you can actually alter these numbers in your contract. You don't have to go with these numbers. But if you start to say, well, but we want to spend a lot of time on schematic design, and you say, let's, let's say we make that 45% because we really want that initial model to be really great, well, you still only have 100%, and you still have to eventually do all the wall sections and the schedules and all of that stuff. So there's a danger of thinking, oh, well, it's a new day. We're now doing this on Revit. So therefore, we should not worry about schematic design and let it, let it slide over. The danger with that is you still have to do all, that other sets of, all those other sets of drawings. Uh, and information sort of has to get out to all the other folks. So it's a, it's a tricky question. And it's one that's kind of a topical thing right now. My guess is you will see this be a very current uh, conversation in the recent in the coming years about contracts but for the moment this is the sort of assumed standard you will see like I said slight variations on it uh, sometimes 15 15 uh, 45 uh, sometimes 20 15 45 but it'll be something similar to this yeah a lot of folks are asking you know are those the right percentages is this sort of like a a gold standard, and I think the point here is that this is sort of a, a general idea that has some flexibility to it, but it's more about understanding that there are these different percentages, and you have to kind of manage all of them as a part of the and there's managing a project. Exactly, you have to manage all of them, and there are certain expectations that are actually built into how clients and architects have worked together through contracts for years, 
And so if you get through the schematic design level of, uh, of drawings and you've done a bunch of drawings and you submit those drawings and then the client says, you know, this isn't really working out. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not digging it. Um, so uh, let's, we're going to cancel the contract. And you think, well, that, okay, that's fine. At least we'll get paid for our work. We've spent, uh, you know, 35% of our time, of our overall billing time on the schematic design. And they say, but the contract says schematic design is 15%. Uh, that means you're getting paid the 15%, not getting paid the 35%. Uh, so you'll still get paid for your work, but only the amount that was contracted for. So it's just an important concept to understand. And like, as Mark just said, you can actually alter these numbers. Uh, you know, you can change the contract, that's okay. It's just that it has implication and you have to make sure that it makes sense and be able to sort of work with it through the whole life of the project. All right, that was complicated. <laughs> Let's try another one. Number two, client is highly motivated regarding time. The project is a junior high school, uh, but the bond money only just came through and they only have 12 months to start uh, the design uh, get the permit and build the building before classes start. What might you suggest to the client? And we have four possibilities. A, start with a CPM schedule, a critical path method schedule. B, fast track. C, suggest a new beginning date of school. D, uh, I guess the architect should immediately start working overtime. Um, well, most of us probably understand that D is probably a correct answer, um, but it is not the correct answer. Uh, so we're not D. Uh, then the questions come between A and B and C. Uh, start with a CPM, a critical path method schedule. Well, any project really probably wants to start with a critical path method uh, schedule. That's just a, a figuring out how the overall schedule is going to work such that if any one thing is on, uh, if any one thing needs to be done before another thing can start, then those things are on the critical path. Other things that can happen, whether something else is done or not, can float on that path. So a CPM path is a very useful way of doing scheduling, but it doesn't really necessarily pertain. It's certainly a correct answer, but it doesn't necessarily pertain to the situation that we're talking about here. Uh, so I'm gonna say not A and not D. So then it comes down to B and C. C is certainly a reasonable answer of saying, well, that's just not enough time. 12 months, uh, you really should uh, move, the, move the date. But that's not really the architect's role to decide that sort of pro forma issue. Moving a school date is actually a huge economic and political decision. Uh, you know, imagine you have to, what, rent space for an entire school for a year or something. Like, it would be a massive uh, uh, intake, and it would also seem like failure uh, politically, and people would be very uh, troubled by that. Uh, so, while C may be a reasonable one, and it might be something to talk about, the actual answer here is fast track. And so, when we say fast track, we're talking about the project delivery method of fast track. So, what fast track is, is when uh, as instead of uh, doing the typical design bid build, so if you think of design bid build when there's an architect and, a, and an owner, the owner hires the architect and you go through, uh, 
through a big, long design process. And in that design process, we've got the schematic design, we've got the design development, we then do all of the CDs. So we've got a whole big series of, say, discussions and kind of uh, understandings about the process. We go through a bidding process. Eventually, a bidder is chosen, so now there's a GC, uh, and that GC then builds the whole project out. Uh, well, that's awesome, but it takes a lot of time. Uh, so that's a great thing, but in this situation, we would be, in the 12 months, we would be four or five months into it before we even had the, the bids going, and it just wouldn't really work. So standard design bid build won't work, but maybe fast track will. So fast track is a situation where you say, all right, we're starting here, we're going to do the drawings for uh, the excavation and foundation systems. And then we're going to hand those drawings off and they're going to start constructing the foundation. And while they're constructing the excavation and the foundation, we're going to keep working as the architect. So this is the architects and this is the GC. Uh, and we're going to do the, uh, maybe the structural system, the uh, steel structural system. And then once we're done with that, we're going to hand that off and now these guys are going to take that and start building the, the overall steel uh, skeleton structural system. And there's a little bit of overlap there, so they have time to order their materials. So then the architects are continuing on, and now they're designing the interior of the building uh, and the skin of the building. Let's say the skin of the building first. Uh, again, there's a little time to overlap for ordering. Uh, and then the contractor starts building the skin. And then the interior, again. So it won't save a huge amount of time, but it's going to save some time. Uh, and that's probably the only real way that you could do a 12-month for a school, something along those lines. So fast track is this way of delivering a project. Uh, so instead of design, bid, build, instead of design, build, instead of construction manager, this is fast track and it overlaps the drawing time with the building time. There are some obvious advantages and obvious disadvantages. The obvious advantage we've already talked about, we can squeeze the time. So it's very useful from that standpoint. The obvious disadvantage, that means they've already built the foundation and the structural system when I'm only just now thinking about how the curtain wall is going to work. Uh, so clearly mistakes get made and you end up having to go back in and change things out after you've already done stuff. So it costs some extra money. You don't get fast track for free. It's uh, definitely on simple projects it might only be say 20% more expensive. On complicated projects it might be 50% more expensive. So you would do it only if it was truly, truly important, uh, if there was a lot of big money involved in going over time. Uh, also, it can be very complicated from a permitting standpoint. The permit officials have to be on board and you have to kind of do a continuous uh, process of reviewing with the permitting officials so they would see each package of information as it went out to the GC uh, and have their moment to, to change it or add something to it before the GC could start uh, working on it. So it's very complicated, very, there's a lot of overlapping elements. Remember that design bid build version up here where we said we went through the schematic design, we went through the design development, we worked everything out, we got all the details, we bid it out, we know we have a low bid, then we have a contractor and they build, like 
that's the so much smarter of a way to go than fast track, but it takes a really long time. Let's go to number three. The client is concerned about cost and would like to make sure they get the lowest reasonable bid for the construction. You should suggest design bid, design build project delivery method, design bid build project delivery method, value engineering process, fast track project delivery method. Well, we just talked about fast track and we know it ain't that. Uh, we're not getting uh, a low cost when we're going with fast track. There's a bunch of things we get, but not low cost. Uh, Design build may be a way to go. There are certain situations where that can actually be cheaper uh, and it can make a lot of sense, but it's hard to know for sure. The only way to really know for sure that you're getting the low bid is by doing a full set of drawings and then getting a full set of bid comparisons from multiple bidders, and that's really the design bid build process that we just talked about. So that's where I go through design develop, or excuse me, schematic design, design development, CDs, uh, get to the, that bidding phase. We then choose a bidder after we have a bunch of them to review and they build it, right? It's because we've done a full set of drawings, there's a clear set of information to be able to base the bids on. You therefore, you get uh, a low bid, you get a high bid, you can trust those are actual real bids because they based it on a real set of drawings. Uh, if cost is the issue, design bid build is the way to go. But it takes a long time. So if time is the issue, there are other ways to go. If cost is the issue, design bid build. Design build is sort of in its own category. There are certain advantages to it from a time standpoint and certain disadvantages. Um, and certain advantages from a cost standpoint and certain disadvantages. But the downside with design build is that we just don't have that moment where we have a clear understanding because we've gone through the whole design process, including all the detailing, and we get to the end of all of that and we have a bunch of bidders. With design build, you've chosen before all that's happened, so you just don't have that ability to know for sure that it's the low cost. Value engineering is related to low cost. It's the world's uh, most hated term by architects. <laughs> Uh, value engineering is that concept where we get to a certain spot, uh, we have a bid, uh, and everybody's like, hey, this is great, we got a bid, now we're ready to go. Unfortunately, our bid is, uh, if it was like my life uh, in the last couple of weeks, $350,000 too high out of uh, four million, uh, and so therefore we have to value engineer and pull out all the good stuff uh, that uh, was, I was really hoping to leave into the design. Um, so value engineering is part of uh, getting a low cost, but it doesn't really fit to the question. Okay, number four. By the end of programming, you should have a good understanding of which of the following. Choose three. So uh, this one is one that I have uh, designed slightly just to uh, try to get you to answer the wrong answer so we can have a conversation. Um, so it's, this is not a particularly well-written one, but you get the point. So end of programming, what should you know? We have goals for the project, preliminary designs, basic budget, areas, square footages, and relationships, contractor sworn statement, feasibility report, ADA compliance. Uh, the answers are we should have goals for the project. That's a significant part of programming. Uh, part of the program, the whole point is that you put together the information uh, that's needed, they gather it all up, and then there's a process that you go through in order to figure out 
what is the point of what we're doing? What are the goals for the project? Uh, and then from there, there's going to be a series of questions about, well, how is it going to work? Not too much detail, but what are the overall areas? How much square footage per type of uh, need? So if we're doing an office building, and let's say the admin area has a certain number of people, how much square footage is that? Do they need a lot of extra conference rooms? Uh, do they need a lot of uh, file storage space? Things like that. What are the square footages? What's the scale? What are the areas? What are the relationships between, uh, let's say, uh, admin and marketing, or uh, maybe there's a very strong relationship between admin and marketing, but not so much of a strong relationship between facilities and marketing, uh, so that they don't need to be right next to each other, but admin and marketing want to be near each other or in the same space. Um, are there ways that we can use uh, the same conference room that the admin people said they wanted uh, and the marketing people said they wanted one? Can that be one conference room? Right? So understanding the sort of areas and square footages and how all those relationships are going to work is a key part of what the program is, is trying to do. And then many of you probably looked at this and said, well, preliminary designs, that seems reasonable. It's right at the beginning, you have a sort of preliminary sense, you're talking about all of these issues, and that is absolutely not the correct answer. Uh, so B is a definitive no. Uh, and this is actually quite likely to show up on the exam in some uh, form or other. Uh, however, a basic budget is likely to be part of the program uh, just to be able to say, yeah, it's a, it's a $5 million project or it's a $4.2 million project so that you have some sense of scale and that's going to help understand uh, what our square footage possibilities are it's hard to talk about square footages without having a sense of what the overall budget is, but we are not talking about designs. We are talking about all the stuff you do before you start designing. And the reason that's important, and this is a hard one for all of us architects, whenever we start a project, uh, if we're part of the programming, which we aren't always, often the owner just brings the program, but if, if we're part of the programming, Somebody says to you, all right, we're going to do uh, this new office, or we're going to do a school, or we're going to do a library. He's like, oh, and you start thinking of libraries, and you have all these ideas, and they're, uh, we could have a cantilever over the sidewalk and create a canopy. That would be cool in this place. That would be great. Well, you're designing before you've looked at the research. You're, you're thinking of the design before you've gone through the process that should lead you to a design. And the reason that's a problem is because if you do it that way, you are likely to do the research that answers your design, not the actual research. You, you will find ways to make your design the correct design instead of finding the correct information and then getting a design from that. So this is a key sort of concept uh, that anything that's regarding programming would want you to understand. It's not about having an idea before you get in there. It's about finding the information uh, that's going to tell you how the design should be and then designing from that information. Contractor's sworn statement is something that you do at payout times. That's when uh, they say this is how much it's going to cost, this is how much uh, we want you to, uh, uh, to uh, pay us, and you do an initial one uh, when the construction is about to start, um, but that's not at the end of programming yet. You still have to design the building. 
A feasibility report may be a part of programming, but isn't necessarily. Uh, ADA compliance is sort of part of everything, but again, isn't necessarily part of programming. So the three real answers are goals, basic budget, relationships and square footages, and all of that. I think we've got 23 folks remaining on our, I don't know, we had about 150 people. Cool. Uh, sorry if I lost a few people on that one. Not, not as many as you might think. Okay, good. Number five, the program calls for a building with 60,000 square feet per floor on three floors. However, upon reviewing the building code, you realize that the height and area tables only allow up to 40,000 square feet of floor area for the construction type that you have currently assumed for the project. What is your most likely, what is your most likely game plan? So A, we have the possibility of using a four-hour rated wall to divide uh, the building into two sections. B, don't tell the client, but propose a discussion with the code official. C, tell the client what is the maximum amount they can build, 40,000 square feet. Or D, look for programming overlaps to reduce square footages. So to answer this, I'm going to go uh, backwards through this. Uh, D, totally a reasonable answer, except for the fact that you always are doing D you're always trying to find overlaps and to reduce. That's one of the points of a, a program and one of the points of being an architect is that you see those kinds of elements. So looking for ways to get overlaps to reduce the square footages, that should be something that you're doing for every project all the time. So D doesn't really quite answer this situation. I'm gonna jump to B. B starts with don't tell the client. You know immediately that's not an answer. So it's not B and it's not D. Uh, don't tell the client, but propose a discussion with the code official. Uh, it's always a good idea to talk to your code officials as much as you can. Uh, so that's fine, but uh, not in that way. You would always want to have the client know what was going on for something that major. So now we have A and C left. Let's look at C. Tell the client what is the maximum amount they can build, which is 40,000 square feet. Uh, you absolutely would want to tell them that but that's not really gonna be the answer they're looking for. They're looking for, okay, great, but how do I get 60,000 square feet? And of the choices that we have here, the only really good one is A. So I have a building, a lopsided building apparently. Uh, it's 60,000 square feet per floor. It's multiple floors. Uh, one of the ways I might be able to answer this is by changing my construction type. Uh, maybe I have a steel building and instead of using steel, I'm going to make it uh, a concrete construction instead uh, and I get uh, more square footages on my height and area limitations. Um, maybe there's a couple of other ways I could approach it, but the only one that was given to us that was a reasonable approach was A. So A is where I have one building, but I essentially put what's referred to as a building wall right down and that's that four hour wall. Now, I might have a, a corridor that goes right through it, and I can have that be open with doors, and those doors can be on hold opens, so they just sit up against the wall, if you will, uh, and they just sit open. So anybody who's in the building may not even realize that it has technically become two buildings. So from a code standpoint, this is now two buildings, but from the use standpoint, it's still one building. So uh, I, I put this in here. I've talked about this before in a couple different places. 
Um, the reason I put this example in is to get you to see that the code never tells you you can't do anything. What it tells you is the way that you're thinking about it, you can't do it. So you have to change the way that you're thinking about it. So there's always a way to bring you through the process. Uh, you know, we could have this be, you know, maybe they wanted to have it be an unlimited size. Well, that probably means you need to change the construction type, or it probably means that something else needs to change, or maybe uh, you have to think of it as separate buildings and then find each one has their own uh, egress and some other possibilities. The code is not ever going to say yes or no. It only gives you a series of hoops that you have to jump through in order to make the thing that you want to make. And this is just one example. Um, if I could, I'd much rather not build this big four-hour wall because that four-hour wall costs a lot. So it's a big expense, so I wouldn't want to do it if I wasn't required to do it. But I could still have one building that reads to the code officials as two buildings and therefore fits through all of those needs. That wall would have to go all the way up and down from foundation to roof, by the way. Okay, number six. The proposed site for the new medical clinic in Springfield, Ohio is approximately 60,000 square feet. The building is proposed to be a one-story, 30,000 square foot brick veneer structure with a steel frame and open web steel joists. The zoning code calls for a parking lot of 60 cars, but upon receipt of the survey, it becomes clear that the site is currently approximately 40% wetland. What should the architect propose to do? So think about that for a second. We have 60,000 square feet site. So I'm just gonna randomly draw a site and say that's 60,000 square feet. We've got a 30,000 square foot building on that site and we have a parking lot for 60 cars. So how big is a parking lot for 60 cars? Well, the simple way to do that is you can multiply somewhere between 300 to 350 square feet uh, per car. So let's say 300 times 60. What do you get? I'm going with 18. <laughs> 1,800. 18,000 18, square feet. Um, that would be the minimum it would be because it's actually probably a little higher. That's why the 350 is there. So if we round it out to about 20,000 uh, square feet, uh, then we start adding that together. We have 20,000 square foot parking lot, a 30,000 square foot building, and then a, that's, so that's 50,000 square feet of built on land. And then that only leaves 10,000 square feet left for open site land uh, that is currently 40% uh, uh, wetland. So we're, the building and the parking lot together are absolutely going to take over wetland space is what we figured out from that calculation. And by the way, before I move on, just a quick thing about the parking. Remember, you can always just figure it out too. I mean, I had this number memorized, this 300 to 350, which is a good one to memorize. But remember, a parking space is, you know, nine feet by 19 feet. And then there's uh, 24 feet aisleway, sometimes can be a little bit less. And then I have parking on the other side again. 
So you can start to figure that out. That would be uh, 62 feet times 9 times 30, because it would be 30 cars on each side. And if we did that calculation out, that would end up being right about 18,000. It would actually be, I think, 17,200 or something like that. But you also have the driveways and other backup spaces and things, so it add up to about 18,000 plus driveways, um, which is the number that we used. So you can always just figure it out if you need to, but those are the numbers. Um, so what we're saying here is we've got more built area in terms of parking and building uh, on this 60,000 square foot site than can just accommodate a 40% of that site being wetland. So now let's look at the possible answers. A. Carefully plan, and infill, plan the infill process so that the wetlands will recreate themselves in a new location upstream. That sounds interesting. B, the project will have to get permission to buy land elsewhere and build new wetlands in another location and produce an environmental impact report showing how compliance will be met. C, the project will fit without damaging the wetlands. Well, we actually just figured out that that's actually not gonna be the case. So that can't be. Designs, design the wetland, this is D, design the wetland stormwater retention area to go under the parking lot in a precast concrete vault. So using the space of the parking lot and let that be the wetland and stormwater retention uh, system for the, for the site. So that sounds interesting. So the only one we've definitely crossed off is C. Now we have to start thinking about this a little bit more. So who is going to be interested in the wetlands? Well, the wetlands are part of the overall watershed of an area, meaning uh, water moves across the land in various ways, underground, in rivers, in creeks, on lakes, uh, and in wetlands. And you can't just mess with a wetland without sort of messing with the overall environmental impact on an area. So the Environmental Impact Agency, uh, Environmental Protection Agency, EPA, uh, is very concerned about these issues, both at the state level and at the national level. Uh, but also, wetlands are part of uh, a certain set of flora and fauna. Uh, so we're gonna have certain animals are gonna thrive in, in wetlands, uh, other animals are not. Uh, certain plants are gonna thrive in wetlands and won't in other locations. So they're important from that environmental standpoint as well. So let's look at D for a second. Design the wetland stormwater retention area to go under the parking lot in a precast concrete vault. That's a completely reasonable answer for stormwater retention. But I can't really use that as my wetland because birds can't come and nest in your parking lot underneath in the concrete vault. Uh, wetland plants can't grow in underneath your parking lot. Like it's only doing one of the things that a wetland has to do. And that uh, one of the, the one thing it would do is it could potentially be part of an overall watershed. So the fact that it doesn't meet enough of the wetland issues means that D is not a reasonable answer either. So now it's between A and B. So A says carefully plan the infill process so that the wetlands will recreate themselves in a new location upstream. So in other words, you just start building up your site and pushing the wetland back. Well, what you're really doing is you're pushing the wetland onto somebody else's property. Does that seem like it's gonna be a good plan? Like when you say it that way, it becomes pretty clear. 
yeah, A, can't work. You can't just make somebody else's property a wetland. Uh, that's just not viable. So the actual probable answer here is B, the project will have to get permission to buy land elsewhere, build a new wetland in another location, and then produce an environmental impact report that shows that this will actually work. Doesn't mean you can produce a wetland anywhere. It has to be someplace that actually would be useful in the overall watershed. So if you're going to sort of uh, fill over uh, an old wetland, it's essentially saying either don't, and you have to find a way to fit onto the site. Maybe I put the parking lot below the building or something like that. Or you have to find some way that you're gonna replace that wetland in a way that actually is meaningful to the wetland system. Hopefully that, that's clear. Uh, it's a tricky one. Um, it's very expensive, uh, which is why people are very nervous about uh, getting too close to wetlands. Uh, and the specific definition of what the wetland is, is a huge issue. Okay, number seven. The term highest and best use refers to what? A, in construction, when a construction system is the most economically logical one for the project. B, in an architecture office, when the uh, employee is being used to the best effect, the best designer is designing, the best detailer is detailing, the best code reviewer is reviewing code. C, in real estate, when a building is the most economically logical use for that particular site. Or D, historical term that refers to the early days of skyscraper design. So highest and best use is definitely not D. Uh, and when it comes down to it, it's really a question when you read through these, is this a construction term? Is it something about how an office is run? Uh, or is it a real estate term? And it's absolutely a real estate term. So highest and best use refers to, is the right building being put on the right site? So if I'm right downtown Manhattan, uh, I'm probably not doing a single family wood frame house. Uh, it's just not the highest and best use for that site. That site just logically wants to have uh, more impact, more zoning, more density uh, for that place. But equally, uh, if I'm out in the suburbs somewhere and I'm uh, in a sea of uh, single family houses, I probably don't want to put a 12 story building because it's just not the appropriate use. It's not the best use for that site. Uh, so highest and best use means you always go to the maximum of its abilities uh, as a site in sort of logic and zoning, et cetera. It's a term you'll hear often and could likely show up on the exam. Okay, I think we're down to two. Two, oh boy, wow. Okay, eight, a client comes to you with a potential project for a new tenant interior build out on a single floor in a downtown office building. The gross area of the floor is 5,200 square feet, and the net square footage for the tenant is 4,400 square feet. What is your initial expectation of the largest total number of occupants for the office? Uh, so this is really just getting at what does the code uh, use as their maximum uh, number? Uh, and when you talk about offices, the typical code use uh, is 100 square feet per person. So for 4,400 square feet, because you would use the tenant area, which would be the net square footage, uh, we're talking about 4,400. Our answer is going to be 44. Uh, 
Now, if you were being really strict about this, you would actually reduce even from the 4,400 a little bit because there's parts of the net square footage that wouldn't count either. Um, so if you answered 40 or 41 or 42 or something like that, that is also a correct answer. But 44 would be the maximum number uh, that you would be able to answer here. Should we move on? Yep. Okay, number nine. The project is located right alongside the Boston Harbor. Uh, I actually am using this based on something I had to deal with back about 20 years ago. So this has a little bit of real <laughs> quality to it. Uh, the project is located right alongside of the Boston Harbor. The client's program calls for four levels of underground parking. But you, the architect, are concerned about the extremely high water table due to the proximity of the large pool of water next to you of the, the harbor. What construction technique might make sense in this situation? A, solid masonry foundation system. B, slurry wall foundation system. C, precast beams and columns. D, long span steel structural framing plan. So there are certain reasons why a long, long span steel structural framing plan could be actually a nice thing in this situation because by doing long span, you're actually reducing the, the amount, the number of foundations that you would need because you have fewer points that it comes down because it's spanning longer, you have fewer columns and things. But it's not really answering the problem. So it's not D. Uh, precast, uh, there are definitely some ways that I could use precast uh, in this situation, but they would not be precast beams and columns. That really doesn't have anything to, to do with being next to uh, the, the harbor and the foundation system going down. Uh, so precast while being a potential answer is not the correct answer uh, in this situation because it's referring to the wrong kind of precast. So then the question is really A or B. And I'm just gonna tell you, uh, it's B. So a slurry wall is this fascinating, weird thing. So imagine you've got a plane of ground, uh, and in this case, uh, that's next to a bunch of water. And you wanna build right up next to it. There's a very high water table, so you know as soon as you dig down, as soon as I dig a hole, that's gonna fill in with water. Uh, so I don't wanna do that. So what I do instead of just building a big hole is I dig a deep, uh, I essentially make where the wall is going to go and I fill it with slurry. So slurry is like everybody's seen when they worked with clay, a kind of wet clay, it's like a heavy water. So it's water that's heavier than normal water. And what that does is it displaces the other water and it holds back the earth so that I'm creating this, this hole in the ground. But then I could just keep going and I make it deeper and I put more slurry in. And then I keep going and I make it deeper and I put more slurry in. And I keep going and I make it deeper and I put more slurry in. So that essentially I have this heavy water in here just filling up that space that I've just dug all, all the soil out of. And that heavy water is holding back the soil from falling in, and it's holding out the other water from taking the place. So I've made what I want to be a concrete wall, I've actually made a big hole and filled it with this slurry. I then come in, drop in a bunch of cages of rebar, I put those down into that hole, 
and then I pour concrete into it. Now you have to be a little careful because you're pouring all the way down to the bottom. So you have to use a very specific system of getting the concrete down low. And then I fill the concrete up and it fills up and 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 up. And as I'm filling it up, I'm displacing the slurry. If I'm doing it right, I'm probably saving it and gonna use it again because it's usable. Uh, and eventually I fill that whole space with concrete. So what I've done is I've built a foundation wall underground next to the water. So you might say, but I still have a lot of dirt there. I can't park cars yet. Yeah, but now I can go through and dig out dig out all of this area and I can dig that out and then I keep digging down and then I keep digging down and I leave just enough down there that it has the ability to sort of cantilever up and out and so now I have this whole big area as my excavated site and I can just leave that concrete wall right there uh, and put all the parking levels I want down below uh, slurry wall is one of those things for the right situation. It is totally useful. Uh, the likelihood that you in your practice will ever actually use a slurry wall, relatively low, unless you're doing projects like these and locations like these where it comes up all the time. Um, but it's one of those ones that gets asked a lot because it's kind of a cool process and I think people just like it and so it shows up on the exam. So. That's why I wanted to mention and that And if one. you needed a good reference for this, you want to find one. Um, you know, the, uh, the slurry wall at the World Trade Center, the Freedom Tower, it's is a like super yeah. famous one. Um, so Google that real quick and you'll find all kinds of stuff about it to give you some visuals. Yeah, and the example I was talking about was Rose Wharf in Boston from the late 80s, uh, which I had to do some work on at one point. Okay, so slurry walls, fascinating. Number 10. The client is concerned about cost overruns from the architect's contract. In developing the B101 owner architect agreement, you should suggest A, the owner bring in a construction manager, B, follow the A201 requirements, uh, C, an hourly contract, D, a lump sum or GMP. So the client is concerned about cost overruns from what the architect is gonna bring. So this is their big issue. Uh, if we're gonna do it as hourly, man, they're going to be nervous as hell about that, right? Because you could just keep working and working and working and getting paid every hour. Uh, they just will be apoplectic about that. So it's not uh, doing hourly, at least not with this much information. I could imagine this question slightly differently and it would actually lead you to hourly, but not the way this question has worked. Uh, follow the A201, A201 requirements. Everybody has to follow the A201 requirements. That's part of using the contracts. A201 general conditions. Uh, a, the owner, uh, the owner bring in a construction manager. Um, that could possibly be helpful, uh, but also maybe not. Um, it, uh, it isn't really obvious that that's necessarily bringing the architect's cost down and making the owner sort of more calm about that issue. However, if you use a lump sum in your contract, meaning here's the price, or a GMP, a guaranteed maximum price, that's what GMP is, guaranteed maximum price. Uh, a GMP means here's the answer, 
this answer, like this is what we're gonna, uh, we're gonna charge you, kind of no matter what, whatever comes up, we've said, we've signed a contract, we're gonna give you this project, we're gonna design this project for you, and here is our GMP. Uh, so if that's what their concern is, that's what they're gonna wanna see. So D would be the answer there. All right, how'd we do? All right, pretty good. Um, well, we're down to one person, but um, yeah, you tripped him up pretty early. <laughs> so we're sort of down to nobody, but we're backing up to you know the okay. last standing person cool. earlier. So um, uh, so that was good. So we had uh, Nassim H from MTA is the is the winner. Way to go, Nassim. Uh, there, but uh, in any case, uh, like I said, the questions are a little goofy in order to be able to bring up certain topics. So uh, don't don't fret about it if you got some of them wrong. So let's see here. We did have a couple of questions before we hop in here or before we take off. Uh, Wanda asked an interesting question uh, regarding the slurry wall. So she says, does it become a retention wall then? Which I thought was kind of an interesting question. Yeah, it does. Basically it does, right? Um, and so you actually have to design it. They, the design of them are really odd um, and frankly beyond my specific knowledge because it gets pretty specific. Um, but they tend to be pretty thick, and that's partly because they have to do a lot. They're keeping a lot of hydrostatic pressure out. They're structural in the sense that they're, you know, they're the found part of the foundation. They're not the only part of the foundation, but they're a big part of the foundation. Um, uh, so, so they're they're big and wide, um, but they're also big and wide because you have to be able to dig down maybe 30, 40, 50 feet. Uh, from the top, and you know, you, you're not going to be able to do that in a 12-inch wide, uh, you know, space or something. So it, it they tend to be between two feet and three feet, up to like five feet thick. Um, so they're they're big, heavy, heavy, heavy walls. Um, so they uh, kind of have a life of their own. Um, and yes, they are also retaining walls. But remember, you're doing it not typically. You're doing it not as a standalone wall but as part of a full ring of a foundation wall. So um, it's not that it's got to stand up by itself. It's also braced um, as it goes around the corner. It's braced by the next two walls, uh, if you think of a square bracing the side wall. Okay, and then we had, let's see here, one more. Brian asked, which AIA agreement gives the percentages for the different design phases? So the schematic design, design development, CDs, bid, et cetera. Um, it's, uh, I'm not sure if I remember exactly. Yeah, it's actually, it's built into, um, you know, it's interesting. I'm, uh, it's, it's built into, I believe, the B101, um, but it may actually not be in the B101. It might be part of uh, the A201 or something like that. I would have to look it up uh, specifically. Um, like I say, though, it is changeable. Um, so it's not that it's uh, tying your hands. Um, this is more a set of numbers, a set of uh, percentages that are just sort of, uh, for lack of a better term, industry standards that the contracts have adopted. Okay, beautiful. Well, let's see here. So here's what we're going to do. So first, I want to thank you, Mike. I uh, appreciate that was a great, um, a great mock exam. Uh, lots of great feedback here from everybody. So I think that was really awesome. I want to thank everybody for attending. Um, if you'd like to attend the next ARE live broadcast, um, I just posted the link in the chat box in your GoToWebinar control panel. So just go down where it says chat and then the link is there. 
Again, we'll be focusing on ARE4 vignettes um, next session. So be sure to go to blackspectacle.com slash podcast to register or click that link. Um, and just like today's episode, you'll get to ask questions and share your answers. I know a number of you said, hey, I can't get, you know, I didn't get the, I didn't get the mock exam in advance. Uh, or, you know, they didn't, they didn't, uh, weren't able to, yeah, didn't, didn't have it uh, prior to this. So just know, we'll make sure that everyone gets it emailed out um, ahead of time uh, so that you all surely have it, um, you know, prior to this. Um, to learn more about our exam prep curriculum, which I mentioned earlier, now includes 1300 flashcards for ARE5. Um, we have practice exam, almost a pra really a practice exam simulator uh, for both ARE4 and 5, as well as all of our lecturers at Mike. Uh, Mike teaches, um, you can go to blackspectacles.com where you can try out any of the free videos. And as I always say, if you want your boss to pay for your membership, be sure to visit blackspectacles.com slash firms to learn more about our firm memberships for firms of any size. For those of you who are ready to start preparing for ARE, for the ARE right now, and if you're already an AIA member, as you can see here on the screen, you can use the coupon code PPP121217. PC to get 15% off your ARE prep membership. And then, you know, finally tomorrow we'll send an email follow-up about today's live broadcast. So please let us know what you think and share any suggestions you may have. We read every word that you write and we use them to tune our next episodes. So thanks for tuning in.